Well, hey, you know what? Several years ago, uh, there was a report that came out about a very interesting uh, controversy, if you will, that was going on in a courtroom in Waterloo, Iowa. And the controversy was over this question, what is a Christian? And it began after the reading of the will of a very wealthy doctor who had passed away in town because his instructions were to distribute his substantial amount of money to Christians in town, and he specifically stated to persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and in the Bible and who are endeavoring to propagate the same. Well, when the contents of his will became public knowledge, it sparked a great dispute, and the dispute was over exactly who in town were Christians and therefore worthy of their share of the doctor's fortune. Well, lawsuits and counter lawsuits were filed and eventually the court was given the responsibility of settling the issue. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> each one of the ministers was invited into the courtroom and given the responsibility of trying to, to, to dis decide what this all meant. So each minister in town that had claimed a stake were called in to appear before the judge. He wanted to see if they were in agreement when it came to exactly what Christianity's fundamental principles were. They were representatives of various Christian denominations and there were even a few Unitarians that showed up. And as you can imagine, there was a great difference of opinion in that courtroom as to what it meant to be a Christian. And I am certain that probably even more fascinating were the discussions that went on on who deserved some of the money. But the truth is, folks, there is still a wide variety of opinions as to what a Christian is or what a Christian is not. Many people say being a Christian has something to do with the country that you live in. People say, I'm an American. And since America is a Christian nation, that makes me a Christian, doggone it. Well, first of all, I'm not even sure that America is a Christian nation any longer. And secondly, to say that you're a Christian because you live here makes about as much sense as being a politician makes you wise. Well, I'm glad I went with that one. That got a great response. <laughs> Can I tell you what the first one was? You being, be, be saying you're a Christian because you live here makes about as much sense as saying because you're a Raiders fan, you're a Super Bowl champion. <laughs> My friend over here is a big Raiders fan. I told him out of respect and honor to him, I was not going to say that joke. But since we're buds, he knew I could get away with it, so. <laughs> Others seem to think they believe that the political party that you align with determines whether you're a Christian. Some people believe the family that you are born into determines your Christian status. A lot of people even refer to themselves as Christians by default. I mean, they're not Buddhist, they're not Muslim, they're not Jewish or Hindu, so why not be a Christian, right? 
Others think only members of their particular denomination are Christians. And that can be very confusing, folks, because there's so many different Christian denominations out there. I mean, give me a break. The last count, there were 267 different types of Baptists living in our country. Well, today's scripture in Acts chapter 11, I believe is a perfect place to go to in order for us to clarify this issue. Because it tells us about the the first time the term Christian was actually used and it was referring to the people in Antioch. But before we get into the scriptures and read about that, I wanna spend just a couple of minutes reviewing what we believe the Bible teaches about being a Christian. And here's number one. Being a Christian is not related to physical birth. In other words, I'm a Christian, but I was not born that way. My parents were Christians and they took me to church my whole life. My father's philosophy was if the church doors are open, then we're gonna be there sitting in our favorite pew. My mom and dad even taught me basic Christian principles, but that did not make me a Christian. You see, a person does not become a Christian as a result of being born into into or raised in a Christian home because salvation is not related to physical birth. You cannot be born a Christian however Jesus taught that you must be born again. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but whenever a major ministry goes into a city to have some kind of a Billy Graham type of crusade uh, or something like that, they will often perform a religious census. And workers from that ministry will go door to door and conduct interviews to find out if the people attend church or not. Part of the survey is designed to determine if they are in fact Christians. And you'd be surprised about how many uh, times adults angrily tell these census takers that they were Christians simply because they were born in a Christian home and that in essence they were bound for heaven when they died. Not because of any personal decision that they made, but simply because of the heritage of having been born into a Christian family. Well, these people are wrong because being a Christian has nothing to do with physical birth. Here's another one we believe. Becoming a Christian is not reformation. I'll explain a little more about that in a minute. I mean, it's not turning over a new leaf or acting like a Christian and trying to live a better life. Certainly everyone should try to live a moral life, but this should be a result of the new birth experience that we've had in Christ Jesus when we became a Christian. And again, we'll talk more about that later. Just turning over a new leaf and and trying to do the right thing and living a moral life, well, these efforts don't make you a Christian. During World War II, Dr. Ellis Fuller, who was a president of a Christian seminary, was doing a radio broadcast. Prior to the broadcast, he had to submit his manuscript in writing for their approval. In his manuscript, he said this, My prayer is that when this war is over, every person at the negotiating table for peace will be a Christian. Well, the editors read his text and they wanted him to delete the indefinite article A and say this, my prayer is that when this war is over, every Christian at the negotiating table for peace will be Christian, not 
a Christian. And this man was having a difficult time getting them to understand that there is a difference between being Christian and being a Christian. Being Christian means you have, uh, it means bearing, excuse me, being Christian, not a Christian, being Christian means bearing an outward fruit of the Christian life and and conducting oneself as a Christian and, and living a godly life. Being a Christian means you have personally had a new birth experience that has changed your inner nature. You see, attempting to live up to the standards of of Christianity or acting like a child of God doesn't make you a Christian. Here's number three. Becoming a Christian does not happen through any external religious action. What I mean is you don't become a Christian by being baptized. You become a Christian by the blood of Jesus that has covered or atoned your sin. You do not become a Christian by participating in communion. You don't become a Christian by joining a church. Those are external religious actions. However, participation in them is always driven by becoming a Christian first. But I do feel led to say this morning that church membership and regular participation, in my opinion, is essential to your Christian walk. All Christians, I believe, should publicly join a local church and get involved in its ministry. Why? To use your spiritual gifts. By the way, that's what they were given for, to be used in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that all Christians have spiritual gifts, and each was given these gifts for the good of all, to be used in the local church's ministry. But the fact is, church membership does not make you a Christian. Baptism and communion, as I said, are very important. They are both ordinances of the church that Jesus commanded for us to observe. So of course we should follow Jesus in baptism and we should regularly observe communion, which we do every month here. But participation in these very precious ordinances does not make you a child of God. In fact, becoming a Christian is never a result of anything that we do. It is a simple act of faith in Christ and what he has done in us and through us. That's enough of the negative. So what is a Christian? Well, first, becoming a Christian is a personal experience. It's something that you decide on your own. It's when you respond to God, not your parents, not your your spouse, It's when you respond to God. No one does this for you. Remember in the third chapter of John, it records a conversation that Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. In verse three, it says this, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus was trying to get this Pharisee to understand that that salvation is a personal experience, and it still is. Your parents can't do this for you. Your pastor cannot do this for you. No one can. You have to respond to God personally. 
You have to pray a prayer, something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner and I am in need of your forgiveness. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and he died on that cross for my sins. So forgive me, be my savior, help me to serve you as Lord and God. A simple, personal prayer like that makes you a Christian. And then understand, becoming a Christian is an act of God's grace. Our salvation is something that we are given. It's something we could never hope to deserve or earn. And this is one of the hardest things that people both inside the church and outside the church have a hard time grasping. They, they think to receive eternal life, it would have to be, uh, you'd have to deserve it by living a good life, kind of like doing your chores in order to earn your allowance, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We can never be good enough to reach up to God. So in his wonderful grace, God reached down to us in the form of his only son, Jesus Christ. And when we became Christians, then we come to know God personally. And, and, and this is one of the first things that we realize. I mean, the closer you and I get to God, the more aware we are of how ridiculously weak our attempts at righteousness really are. Anybody relate with this this morning? You're being very quiet on me, and I don't know if you're agreeing or disagreeing, but I'm trying to preach to you the truth. We, we, we've, we've, we've somehow inserted tasks and, and things that we think we are required to do in order to be a Christian. Now, many of those things are great, they're awesome, but, but they're not required. You, you don't go through a set of drills every day and go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm secure, I'm a Christian. And I think a lot of Christians do that. We understand very much, or we should understand very much, how much we need God's grace. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter three, not having a righteousness, he said, of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. In fact, I believe it's because of God's amazing grace that the Bible records those people who were nearest to God, they never boasted about their deeds. They were almost disgusted at, at the thought of, of self-salvation. For example, Isaiah, he stood at the base of God's throne and he looked up at God himself and he said this in Isaiah 64, six. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I don't know how much more plain you can get than that. And the Apostle Paul wrote in, in Philippians 3.8, he, he, he equated our efforts at goodness this way. He said, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Another translation uses the term cow dung instead of garbage. I consider it all dung compared to uh, that I might, might gain Christ. These godly men were very accurate, I believe, in their choice of word pictures because our salvation could never be the result of something that you and I do or any sinner for that matter. We can never be good enough for our holy God because we don't just sin, we are flawed fallen beings. Even our thoughts are tainted. So our, our best attempts 
at being good really do fall short. But praise God, we are offered this beautiful thing called the grace of God. Listen, salvation has to be a gift because we could never work our way out of our sinful state on our own. But this did not stop God. His love for us is so vast, it is so great that he was willing to come to us. In Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8, it said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I love the way Max Licato describes this. He said, ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored. Our sin is punished and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before God. Okay, I wanna take some time to look at what being a Christian is not and what being a Christian is. But there is more to understand if we are to clarify this issue this morning. And, and as I said earlier, that's where our text from this morning comes in. Because by studying these Christians in Antioch and how they live, we're gonna see what genuine Christian really look like. In essence, we're gonna learn how to be recognized as Christians. So take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 11 if you're not already open there, and I want you to follow along as we read, and I think you'll see what I see. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can follow along on the screens. The scriptures will be on the screens throughout this message. Acts 11, 19 through 30, I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, this is where it said, were called Christians first in Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So let's talk a little bit about Antioch. It was located 400 miles north of Jerusalem. 
But as we read a moment ago, Christians from Jerusalem had fled there because of the persecution that arose after Stephen had been stoned to death. Some went to Samaria, others went to Caesarea, some to Damascus, some to, to Lydda and Joppa. We've talked about Joppa last week. Those names should all be familiar with you because we've been, we've been covering them in the ministry of Philip and Peter and what they did in those towns. Well, Luke tells us that wherever these believers from Jerusalem fled to, they shared their faith. Most of them only witnessed to fellow Jews, but praise the Lord, as we talked about last week, eventually that mold was broken because some of these dispersed believers who were originally from Cyprus fled to Antioch and they began to share their faith with the Gentiles there. And through their efforts, the first Gentile church was birthed. Now, Antioch was a major uh, uh, ancient metropolis, if that's what you want to call it. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, only behind Rome and only behind Alexandria. And it had a population of about a half a million people. And it was the only city in the ancient world, get this, that had their streets lighted at night. Many trade routes passed through Antioch, so this not only made it a very wealthy and culturally diverse city, but it also made it an extremely vile place because it was full of pagan worship and sexual immorality. One of the biggest contributors to Antioch's depravity was a place called the Temple of Daphne. It was located only five miles outside of the city. If you studied Greek mythology while you were in school, you might remember reading about Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne in the Laurel Groves. Well, this temple was supposedly built in the midst of these same Laurel Groves. And on its grounds, Apollo's pursuit of Daphne was reenacted day and night by worshipers and ritual prostitutes. Antioch was also the home to chariot racing and gambling of every different kind that took people's hard-earned money from them, as well as any other type of, of debauchery that your money could buy. It was available there. So think of it as kind of the, the red light district of the world. And yet, in spite of the prevalence of all of this immorality going on in that town, a powerful church started and continued to grow in Antioch. And the way that its members lived led to them be giving, given this name, Christian. And I think if we look closely at the text that we just read, we'll see what we should do if we want to be labeled that same way by our community here in Red Bluff. In fact, there are three lessons that we can learn from these believers in Antioch. And they are lessons, I think, that will help us to, to better understand how we can be known as a Christian. And here's number one. Being a Christian shows. As I said, Antioch was a very ungodly place, and yet against that dark backdrop, the believer's brilliant Christ-likeness became obvious to the members of that community. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, you, in the summertime, I could look out my bedroom window 
out into the thick woods that was just right, right next to us, and I could always see hundreds of lightning bugs lighting up in that darkness. And that's, that's what I'm reminded of when I think of how these believers shined in that city of Antioch. The light of their relationship with Jesus Christ shone brightly in that very sin-filled city. And this reminds me of Paul's words when he challenged the members of the church in Philippi in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, where he wrote, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And this should help us to see that as Christians, we must shine. We've got to let our faith be seen. And in case you haven't noticed, our world today is just as dark as Antioch and probably even darker. So if we live a Christian life, it will naturally contrast against the backdrop of our fallen culture. And the light of our love for Jesus will have to stand out. You see, becoming a Christian, as I said earlier, is not reformation, it is transformation. When we invite Jesus into our hearts, into our lives, we are reborn. We are transformed into a new kind of people. And the more that we allow God's transforming power to work and change our lives, the more our faith is going to show and the more we are going to stand out to people who are unbelievers. I just read about American and British spies during World War II who would parachute behind German lines to help the French resistance. And as a part of their preparation, they were taught how to blend in in France. They were given clothes with French labels. They were taught French mannerisms because standing out could get them killed. So they had to blend in. Well, unfortunately, folks, that's what many Christians do in our world today. We act like spies behind enemy lines. We hide our faith under a bushel, so to speak, as the little song says, by blending in with our culture. We resist God's transforming power, but that's not what an authentic maturing Christian is to do. Paul says in Romans 12 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Being a Christian in this fallen world means being different. And the closer that we walk with Jesus, the more that it will affect and the more that it will change us. So if someone who claims to be a Christian is not different than anybody else, if he or she does not stand out in some way, well, it calls into question the sincerity and the depth of their faith. It was Charles Spurgeon who once wrote, an unchanged life is a sign of an uncleansed heart. And then here's another facet of this principle that I want you to understand. I think this text infers that Christian is not just a name that we give ourselves, it is really more of a designation that is given to us by non-Christians because they recognize something. 
After all, the believers in Antioch didn't call themselves Christians. It was the other way around. It was the lost people in Antioch that called the believers Christians. And the same should be true about us here in Red Bluff, California. Our neighbors, our coworkers, they should see the way we live life, our morals, our behavior, the way we respond to life's trials and, and tribulations. And they, think they should be thinking, now, wait a minute, that person is, is different. What is it about them? Oh, I think I get it. They must be a Christian. You see, there's often a big difference between what one claims to be and what others know them to be. And the fact is that many times we as human beings claim virtues for ourselves simply on the basis that, that we know we ought to possess them when in fact we don't. But here's another reality. People have a tendency to believe what others say about us more than what we say or think about ourselves. For example, let's say you have a small project at home that you need to get something done and you come to me and ask me about a man who someone told you about who was a carpenter. And if I respond to you, well, he calls himself a carpenter with the right inflection in my voice, you would probably go somewhere else. On the other hand, if he did high quality carpentry, if he was honest with his dealings, he would stand out and his reputation would be such that I would say, he's a great carpenter, you can't go wrong with this guy. He is honest, he's hardworking, he's fast, and he does what he says he's going to do. You see, we are known by the way we live. And this is one thing that should be able to be said about any Christian. We are to stand out from the crowd, as it were, in a way where people would say about us, that person is a Christian. That person is obviously a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we talked earlier about the difference between being Christian versus being a Christian, I like how Abraham Shanklin put it. He uses the term Christian versus disciple when he wrote, the Christian is one who professes faith. The disciple is one who practices faith. The Christian is internal in his or her, excuse me, the Christian is internal in his or her conversion. The disciple is external in his or her behavior. The Christian talks about being saved. The disciple lives like they are saved. This leads me to the second lesson that we can learn if we were to better understand what it means to be a Christian. A Christian who is serious about his or her faith matures spiritually. When the church in Jerusalem heard what was going on in Antioch and that people were coming to the Lord in great numbers, they sent good old Barnabas up there to investigate. And when he arrived, he saw that the revival going on there was, was genuine. And so he sent for Saul to help him to pastor these new Christians that were being added to their numbers every single day. Verse 26 says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And only after that year-long discipleship study were these believers in Antioch referred to as Christians. Well, to me, this says that to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ requires 
spiritual growth. To be identified with Jesus means that we must constantly strive to mature and to become more like Jesus. And this is not always easy because it requires discipline and it requires training. As Soren Kierkegaard once said, to become an admirer of Jesus is much easier than to become a follower of Jesus. Plus, if we don't make a conscious decision, folks, to grow spiritually and allow Jesus to, to transform us to become more like him in thought and in deed, then we're going to blend into our culture. And we will become more like the world around us than a disciple of Jesus Christ. A moment ago, I quoted Romans 12 too, where Paul said, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, implied in that admonition from Paul is the fact that if you're not being transformed by God's renewing power, then you're being conformed by the forces that are opposed to God. It's just that simple. I mean, the question is not if you're gonna be influenced and formed spiritually. The question becomes by whom will you be influenced and transformed? You see, we live, in case you haven't noticed, a toxic culture. And it warps people's thinking about God and it pulls people away from God. It's like a, a white shirt being washed in a load of brand new red t-shirts. Never happened to you? I once thought I was doing my wife a favor and did a load of laundry and I discolored something of hers. And she was so kind, she goes, thank you, but let me do the colors in the future. But she has since taught me, and I think I've got it down pat, so. Unless something, yeah, that was for you, Lisa. They love you, that was good. Unless something is done, that blouse with those red T-shirts is gonna be changed. And I might add, it's not gonna be changed for the good. And it's the same with us. We are just as impressionable as that white shirt. I mean, if we choose not to be influenced by God, if we don't set our minds on things that are above, then our minds will be set on earthly things and we will be influenced by this world and its toxic culture. We must realize that we will be conformed to the world around us and its way of thinking unless you and I choose otherwise. We live in an ungodly society and unless we choose instead to be influenced by God, we will become ungodly ourselves. And if the world is going to see us, they're gonna see you and I as Christians, we are gonna to have to strive to become more Christ-like. And we do that by the disciplines of Bible study, by prayer, by worship, and yes, I also believe by Christian fellowship. And that leads me to the third lesson we learn about being a Christian from this text that we read this morning. A Christian is known for the way they give. No, this is not about giving money I'm talking about here, so you can put the wall down for those of you who are sensitive about your money. And you know who you are. Verse 29 and 30 says that in response to Agabus's prophecy of a severe famine, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And down through the ages, maturing Christians have been known for this same practice of selfless, generous giving, not just of their money, but of their time, of their, their talents, and of their resources. This is because when we grow spiritually, we do become more like Jesus. And that's the end game, folks. He was the one who loved us so much that he gave and who is the source of every good and perfect gift that we have in our lives. I read a powerful story about a Christian named Jamie Winship who served, uh, who, who lived in Baghdad after the Gulf War. He taught English and he did so in an effort to help struggling Iraqi businessmen and also as well to share the love of Christ. He was passing through a checkpoint one day and an American MP saw his driver's license from North Carolina and he asked if he was in ministry and Winship replied, he said, why do you ask that? And the soldier said, well, why would anybody else be at this godforsaken place? In other words, the only possible motive that this soldier could think of for a man to bring his family to Iraq was to minister as a Christian and give to those needy, hurting people. And the MP went on to, to tell how much he missed his parents in Missouri and how he longed for some fried chicken from a local diner there. And Winship told him, he said, don't worry, you'll be there again soon. And the MP replied, I hope so, but hope is all we got here. Later on, he was thinking about all the missiles that frequently flew overhead and the car bombs that were constantly exploding near his English school. And Winship asked God to show him how he could make a difference in that, that dark, death-shrouded land that he was living in. And as he prayed, God reminded him of the words of that MP when he said, hope is all we got here. Winship realized that, that God was calling him to give hope to the Iraqi people, the hope that was found in Christ Jesus. So Winship decided to begin by giving hope to the toughest student in his English school. He started with a former major from the Iraqi army, and his name was Mahmoud. He was a loyal Baathist who, who constantly interrupted class by criticizing every American president all the way down to Harry Truman. In short, Mahmoud was a very bitter man, and he was a very difficult man to relate to as an American, but Winship decided to reach out to him anyway. One day, after one of his typical tirades, Winship said, Mahmoud, I want you to know how much I like having you in my class. And I wanna tell you that I spent several hours praying for you last night. Well, this act of prayerful giving stunned Mahmoud. And this led to him opening up to Winship. And the more Winship gave, the more Mahmoud's offenses were lowered until one day he shared the grief about the fact that he and his wife could not, they're unable to have children. They could not bear any children. And Winship promised him that he would pray about that. And then one day, Mahmoud referred to Winship as brother. It was a very high compliment for anyone to call you that within that culture. Well, God answered Winship's prayer by making it possible to set up an appointment for Mahmoud and his wife to visit an American fertility specialist who was practicing in nearby Jordan. And this caused their friendship to grow even deeper than that. But now, instead of spending time criticizing American presidents, Mahmoud began to steer every direction, every conversation, excuse me, towards God. 
One time he pointedly asked Winship in his class, tell the class about the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. And he did. And so for 30 minutes, Winship began to share his Christian testimony. Afterwards, a businessman in that class invited Winship to come and teach his company's 150 students. And Winship agreed, and he asked him, he said, what kind of English do they need? He said, they don't need English. They need hope. Come and give them hope. One day, Winship invited Mahmoud and his wife at his home for dinner, and afterwards, they were enjoying some dark Iraqi tea. And while doing so, Mahmoud described his life as an officer under Saddam Hussein. He said, my soldiers were starving. Each night on television, our president would say how great everything was, but I knew it was a lie. When the American army came, I could not ask my men to fight. I told them to go home and hope that this all would end in Iraqi freedom. At Mahmoud's request, Winship prayed for the future of Iraq, and, and then Mahmoud agreed to study the New Testament with his new friend. Now, I want you to understand that that. Winship was recognized as a follower of Jesus because he first gave. This Christian answered God's call and he did all that he could to give to those people what they needed the most. And that was hope. The hope of a life found in Christ Jesus. And getting this hope marked him. It's what marked him as a follower of Jesus Christ. Scott, will you and the worship team come forward and help me to close this? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet, if you would. I believe that God would ask of all of us this morning, are you a compassionate and giving kind of presence in the workplace or in your neighborhood that sets you apart and shows that you are a Christian who has faith? Are you striving to grow spiritually so that others will recognize you as being a Christian? Have you allowed Jesus to transform your life in such a way that you stand out as a bright light in this dark world? Let me put it this way. If you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I'm not talking about what we do in here talking about what we do out there. As we've been studying this book of Acts and how God moved and how people were added to their numbers every single day, one thing that has come through loud and clear to me is the actions of the Christian Christians in that early church. And not just their actions, but what other people could see in them. And as we've just studied they exhibited or they showed or they displayed the love of Christ in their everyday dealings. And they grew spiritually. They took spiritual maturity seriously enough that it was a priority for them to grow in the things of God. And lastly, they were known for how they gave of themselves, their time, their love, their attention, their care, even their resources if needed. And all of this made them a people who were truly set apart. And furthermore, that's why they were given the title Christians because they were becoming truly like Christ. And let me just say, this doesn't just happen, people. It doesn't just happen 
with, uh, without Jesus' transforming power. It is a power that changes us from the inside out. But that transformation will never happen. That power will never flow in and through us if we fear it or if we simply seek not to participate in it. You know, there are things in life that we engage in and there are things in life we know about but we choose not to engage in, and most of them are for a good reason. But when we're talking about the things of God, and if you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and he is your Lord and Savior, we should want to be engaged in everything that God has for us. Here's the deal, High Point. Too many Christians aren't growing. They're kind of stuck in a rut. They know they have salvation, but they're not necessarily interested in growing deeper in the things of God. And I would submit to you this morning that when you stop growing, it becomes very easy for you to fade away. I've seen it too many times. A lot of faces used to be in here that aren't here anymore. Some have left because they've moved out of town. I know of some that have left because they've walked away from their relationship with God. They did not spend any time growing in their faith and therefore they faded away. I mean, you've got to have something that drives you to get up every morning and face life with an eternal, eternal perspective. Not just about the things you got to get done today, but looking ahead to what you have in your future. Because when that's not there, the world has a way of kind of sucking the life right out of you. So you've got to be strong. You got to know who it is that you serve. And you got to have a purpose more than just having a, a heart beating in your chest. Your heart needs to beat for the glory of God. And if it doesn't, you're just going to exist. But if it does beat for God, you're not just going to live, folks. You're going to thrive. It's that simple. And that's when life gets fun. That's when you are furthering the kingdom of God. And that is where real joy begins to set in, a joy that you haven't maybe ever experienced before. I want to open this altar today to anybody who would say, I'm not happy with the status quo any longer. I want to get into the game. I, I, want, to, I want to grow in my faith. I want to be a giver of Jesus' love and his hope and his mercy to other people. I want to help others find their place in, in God's kingdom so that they can grow too, so that they can serve the Lord and so that they can find the joy that I am seeking as well. I hope that every one of you in this place would say today, there's more in me than what I am giving to God and what I am giving to others. And I want to be better. I want to experience joy every day. I want to live for something bigger than myself and my own personal dreams. I want to help others to achieve theirs. And the truth is, when you are, are serving, when you are growing, when you are maturing in your faith, everyone can see it and it is highly compelling to them. So I would say to you this morning, as you grow, you naturally bring others along with you. And that is a great gift from you. And it is a great blessing for them.
And God wants to use every one of you to bring hope and to bring life and to bring joy to people surrounding us who are so void of any of those things. But in order to do that, you need it yourself first. You, you must experience it in a tangible way. And that's what this altar is for. It's a place where you can come and you can lay down anything before the Lord, the good, the bad, the ugly, and just lay it at his feet. And then you invite him and you trust him to, to transform your life and, and the way that you think and the way that you live and engage in the process of him wanting to completely transform your life into something different than it is today. And people will say about you, they must be a Christian because the love of God shines brightly through their actions every single day. If you desire that for yourself this morning, and I hope you all do, while the worship team sings, let's spend some time at this altar with the Lord. Tell him what your desires are with regard to your relationship with him. And let's seek him this morning for what he wants to do in and through you. We fall down We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus The greatness of Mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy, holy. We cry, holy, holy,
greatness of the Lord. thank you for salvation we thank you for Jesus who came and sacrificed it all so that we could be made whole so that we could have eternal life and on top of that we thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit who indwells us who empowers us and strengthens us to do the things that you have called us to do Father, I pray for boldness in our hearts today every one of us in this place that calls you Lord and Savior. I pray for a boldness that we would quit worrying about what anybody thinks and we would start worrying about what you think. And that we would live our lives in a way that, that would bring hope and light into very dark situations. That we would resist getting caught up in, in, in the small talk and the talk that is negative and tears people down. But Father, that we would be voices of truth and voices of hope because that's what our world needs, not just Iraq. That's what United States of America needs, and that is hope, and the only hope that we have, Father, is found in you. Pray that you would impress that upon our hearts that everything else comes up empty except our relationship with you. So God, help us to grow in our knowledge of you, our understanding of you. I pray that studying your word would be something that we would do, it would be a regular part of our life, that prayer would be a daily part of our life. And Father, as we see ourselves grow, I know that joy comes from that. And from that joy, we are more apt to stand out and to do the things you've asked us to do and to be a bright light in the dark world. So Father, I ask that this body of believers here at High Point Assembly would become contagious Christians, that we would be known for our love, for our joy, for our caring for people, for our generosity towards people, and that that's what would compel them to come through these doors, perhaps. And Father, we know when that happens, uh, they're going to find you. Yeah, you're going to get them saved. They're going to receive salvation. But Father, at the same time, help us to lead people to you outside of these walls. God, make us a church that is on fire for you, a church that is making a difference in our community. Make us a people that daily are reminded of the things of God and share them with those who know not of them. Fathers, we go our separate ways today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps. 
the things we do, the places that we go, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. And Father, that we would shine like bright lights in this dark world. And we would shine so much that people would come to us and say, you must be a Christian because you're different than other people that I've met. And then you open that door, Lord, and we walk through it and we tell them about your goodness. Father, I just pray that you would be with us. And between now and the time that we gather together again, you would keep us safe from illness and disease. You would keep us safe from accidents. But also, God, that you would give each one of us a, a God-ordained moment that someone would cross our path this week and we would have the opportunity of getting into practice of sharing who you are and what you can do and how you can transform a life and that we would be the living example of that transformation before them. So I pray that you'll use us. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the presence of your spirit, not just within us, but in this place that we can feel tangibly walking in and around us every moment that we're here. And I ask as we leave here today, Father, that we would go in love. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.